I've been held by the Savior. I've felt fire from above. I've been down to the river. I ain't the same, a prodigal return. All my hope is in Jesus. Thank God yesterday's gone. All my sins are forgiven. I've been washed by the blood. I'm no stranger to the prison. I wore shackles and chains. I've been freed and forgiven. I'm not going back and I'll never be the same. All my hope is in Jesus. Thank God yesterday's gone. All my sins are forgiven. I've been washed by the blood. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears How precious did that grace appear The hour I first believed All my hope is in Jesus Thank God yesterday's gone all my sins are forgiven I've been washed by the blood All my hope is in Jesus Thank God yesterday's gone All my sins are forgiven I've been washed by the blood All my sins are forgiven I've been washed by the blood Amen. While you remain standing, those who are here for Children's Church today, you are um, you're dismissed for Children's Church.
And you can remain, you can stay seated. I mean, uh, please be seated, yeah. <laughs> I'll get it out in a minute. <laughs> All right, so. So no doubt we can probably <laughs> dismiss right now and say it's been good to be in God's house already. And God has certainly done a tremendous work in the life of so many people here today, and uh, we often say God is good, and we throw that phrase around quite a bit, don't we? But God is good, and God is at work. Constantly, God is at work. I realize that sometimes we fail to see that work. Let me start by saying this. It has been one of those weeks on top of the busyness of ministry, our second car goes down. And I don't know if you ever had this feeling, but I had this overwhelming urge to take a shotgun and fill the car full of holes. <laughs> Can you imagine that... Uh, could you imagine that in, in farm life? I just saw the preacher in his driveway and he's shooting holes in his car. Or he has taken that t-ball bat and he started, anyway. And I'm reminded in that moment that only lasts for a moment. Only lasts for a moment. I'm reminded of the word of the Apostle Paul the church at Ephesus in chapter 2 that wrote, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Larry Stevens would have took a bat to it long ago. Old Larry Stevens would have shot it full of holes or maybe even drove it in the Roanoke River. Who knows? He says, You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And I remember when old Larry Stevens operated under the sons and was one of these sons of disobedience, dead in my trespasses and sin. Then I'm reminded of 1 John 4, 4 that says, if you know it, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We do not have to let the cares of this world overtake us. We do not have to live as if we are in defeat. Why? Because he lives. What's the song? How does the song go? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I can, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I can come to the realization that the world around me will fade away, but those in Christ Jesus will worship in the presence of Jesus forever. We are not cut from the cloth of this world. We are cut from the cloth of the Savior. I must admit, my first fleshly reaction is to either fill the car full of buckshot or roll it into the river, but God is good. God is good. Now, we got to celebrate two baptisms this morning. God is good. One of them being my, 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 my son. I had the privilege of baptizing my son. 
I have the privilege of having my family here to celebrate with us. We have the gospel of Jesus as our unending assurance. God is good. God is good. I hope that you're glad to be here today. I hope that the Lord has already spoken to you through word, through song, through music, through the baptism. I pray that that joy can be sustained even through a difficult topic such as the one that we are embarking upon today. No doubt there will be some truths that were expounded upon here today that might be tough to hear but need to be said nonetheless. If you are joyful to be here, if you are happy to be here today, I'll invite you to stand with me as we read the precious word of God. Let's stand together. Deuteronomy chapter 19, our verses in examination under the microscope of expository preaching will be found in verses 15 through 21 with a sermon that I have entitled, if I was to put a title to it, Proper Justice in the House of, of the Lord. So let's begin with verse 15. The word of the Lord says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person of any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Underline that in your Bible if you can. Verse 19. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil amongst you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. May the Lord add his blessing to that reading of his precious word. And you may be seated, please. If you will allow me a few minutes, <clears throat> we've had a lot already this morning in our order of service. But if you'll allow me just a few minutes, <clears throat> my prayer is to highlight the importance of church discipline. Now you might already be squirming a little bit once I mention the word discipline. We don't, as Westerners, really like that word discipline. In this hyper-individualistic culture, and what I simply mean by that, this is me, myself, and I, my business. In this hyper-individualistic culture, church discipline has almost became the bastion of difficulty, the thorn in the flesh of the church, or the bane of his existence. It has either been overinflated or neglected altogether. Matt Chandler once said, he said, discipline will never bring about the love for God, but love for God will bring about discipline. In other words, those who are truly in Christ Jesus will cherish correction from the Lord. 
If you are in the Lord Jesus and you call, are called a slipping, if you are out of the will of God and in some willful disobedience, a child of God in Christ will cherish correction from the Lord. Why? Because it gives us a good indication that we truly belong to Him. What kind of father does not discipline their children? In fact, we find that very verbiage in Hebrews chapter 12 that says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by Him. Do not hate correction from God. For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastens every son whom He receives. For it is, uh, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And the author of Hebrews ends with this rhetorical question saying, For what son is there who his father does not discipline? So rejoice when you are corrected by the Lord. Rejoice when a preacher or teacher or a brother or sister says something that, as we use the verbiage, steps on your toes a little bit. Rejoice that we are being corrected and straightened by the word of the Lord. Be happy and be joyful when we are corrected. Why? Because we are His. You know, I didn't say, hey, Daddy, come give me a spanking. Mama, come give me a spanking. I love it. Hit me right here. But I knew that they did so because they love me. Same with our Heavenly Father. We are chastened by Him because we are His. Now, very briefly, I would like to touch on the first 14 verses in chapter 19 of Deuteronomy very quickly before we unpack the rest of these verses together. Now, the Lord is laying out the parameters of His law and how to conduct oneself in the company of the body or the assembly. Simply put, how does one prepare their heart to worship? Because the laws remind us at the core is this life lesson that transcends through all of God's Word. It is threaded through all of God's Word, whether under the New Covenant or the Old Covenant. And here it is. Love God and love one another. Love God and love one another. Now Moses is addressing the assembly on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb as Deuteronomy says. They are about to go into the land that the Lord has promised to them. And here is another directive to keep their mind on the things of God and some laws that they need to execute as they are on the go. So here's a quick overview of chapter 19. There are three cities of sanctuary in the city. They are to be selected in the promised land. The land will be divided into these three cities. A city to be placed on, the, on each one and a proper way for it to be measured out. We find that in the first three verses. In what cases that manslaughter might happen, it's like the Lord thought of everything. It's like the Lord has it figured out, right? So in cases of manslaughter or the unintentional taking of a person's life, these cities may be claimed as sanctuary cities. We find this in verse 4 through 6. Now, these verses answer the case, what happens if a person is killed, killed by another unintentionally? The example that is given in God's Word is the head coming off an axe and killing another person. Today we would say, well, what happens if another person is killed in a car accident and some type of manslaughter charges are brought up against a 
the person who was driving, if or when the Lord enlarges the parameters of the land, three more cities might be added, and the reason why is laid out in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 10. Now, what we find in Deuteronomy and what we have found so far is there is dignity to human life that must be upheld. Last time we were together, we spoke about the sanctity of human life and that every, every creature, every person that has ever been created or conceived has dignity. And God is a God that protects human life and we are made in His image, we are made in His likeness. So even in these verses, there is dignity to human life that must be upheld. In fact, what we find is some descriptors of God just in these few verses is that God is loving. It says that the Lord is, he is loving. It says that the Lord is provisional, that God provides the things that we need in life. Primarily, salvation in Christ. Follow the trajectory of Scripture. Follow the history of Scripture. Follow the history of salvation itself. We find that God is a, we said this this morning in Sunday school, He is a salvific God. He is a God that seeks to save. But then He is also a God that is just. We don't like that part sometimes, that God is just. So the murderer who has calculated his or her premeditation shall have no benefit from these cities, found in verses 11 through 13. And all the land parameters, all these manslaughter uh, laws that come into play, the sanctuary city, lead all up to this proper hearing and how to administer justice. And we enter into verse 15. Now, the Lord Jesus will, uh, will utilize this, these portions of Scripture uh, in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But the, if I was to put a subtitle to this, True Justice in the House of the Lord. If I was to put a subtitle under there, here's what I would do. And you can help me on this. Help me on this. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. There I am in the midst. Where two or three are gathered in my name. These are the words of the Lord Jesus recorded in Matthew 18 and verse 20 and can be proven as one of the most misused and one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. Uh, how does this look if it is misused? person would say, well, on Sunday night, I had two people come to worship. I only had two people here. And somebody would inevitably say what? Well, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. It is true that God is in the midst if you are believers, but unless you're exercising church discipline, we have taken that verse out of its context. But let's look in just a few moments how God is in the midst. God is among us even as we look at proper justice in the house of, of the Lord. Again, it is because of God's, of, of God's grace that we do not live in this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth age. Somebody say amen. Because I don't feel like getting stoned for my sin. But some of us still think that we are. And if you don't believe me, let a person, let a church member just make you mad. 
The first thing we want to do is we want to pick up a stone. We want to stone them. We want to crucify them. But if we were, are to be an example of the grace of Jesus and be an example or an extension of the mercy of God, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it follow that we are to forgive one another? Go ahead and mess up. Say something against someone in a hurtful way. First thing we do is we want to retaliate, return evil for evil. And we want to fill our, um, our Ford Escort full of uh, shotgun, butt blast, or whatever. Retaliate. First thing we want to do. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong, wrong uh, connection with any off offense that he has committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall charge Shall a charge be established. Now, these are common sense laws, by the way. Common sense laws. There are laws that are almost written in the very fabric of society itself that, that were written in God's Word, expounded in God's Word, even from the words of the Lord Jesus expounded upon. These instructions are to help regulate admission of testimony in public court. You need to have a witness in court, don't you? They are instituted on the values of what we would call natural law or natural justice. In other words, it's just the way things are. One single witness would not be enough to uh, condemn a person or an accused person. You need two witnesses. In fact, the Hebrew here reads, the Hebrew language reads this verse as this. A fact must be established to the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so putting it that way, putting it this way, this covers whatever the sin that might have been committed. The fact remains that the person has sinned or committed an offense, and thus we must address that sin. But for what purpose? Well, the Lord Jesus answers that in Matthew 18 and verse 15. These are the verses that we use as proof texts for church discipline. The Bible says, Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and gossip about him down the road. It says, you go to him, you tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, did you have gained your brother? By the way, the usage of this word brother is a very generic usage of the word. It means male, female. Are, are both considered. It's not just, uh, the, just the men, right? In connection with Israel on this point, this was in the context of land separation and how to tend to the allotted land. If you had disputes, uh, you go to your brother, you tell him his fault, and Jesus uses the same truth to enforce the dynamics of a healthy church. Nobody wants to go to a church where there are all types of disruptions, all types of dis disfractions within the church where there's people talking about one another behind each other's back. Nobody wants to go to that type of church. And so Jesus here is using this, a borrowing, I believe, from Deuteronomy to enforce the dynamics of a healthy church. If your brother sins, and by the way, this, this goes outside of the local church. Okay, this goes outside of the, the walls of the brick and mortar here and is applied to the church, your brother or sister, whoever is in Christ. He says, if your brother sins against you or you find fault, you go to them first. Why is that step often neglected? Why is that step often neglected when it should be the very first thing that we do? I remember reading a story of a pastor who um, 
had a young deacon. And uh, he came in his office and he's like, Pastor, there are some things that I don't agree with about your ministry and I want to come talk to you about it. The pastor invited the deacon inside and the pastor had probably been at this church for 20 some years and the deacon was his first year in, but he came in and he, he was like, well, I, I just have a few things that I just need to talk to you about. Uh, pastor, I, some things I don't agree with. Well, the pastor invited him in. He said, pull up a chair. And uh, he pulled his chair up and said, you don't mind if we pray first, do you? So the pastor steps up, and they both nailed down at the foot of that, the seat of that chair, and they both began to pray. And they prayed, and they prayed for a few minutes. The pastor said, well, Lord, guide our time today, and we pray that you would give us wisdom uh, to work things out in a godly and Christ-honoring fashion. And they finished praying, and they got up after they said their amen, and the deacon says, well, thank you, brother. Thank you. I really cannot recall why I was upset in the first place. It's all my fault. I was in the wrong. Please forgive me. It is amazing what unity and prayer can accomplish between two Christ followers who love the Lord. Amen. Unity and prayer between two Christ followers who love the Lord. If Jesus is pulling from the framework of, De of Deuteronomy 19, then he continues in verse 16. Gospel of Matthew 18, chapter 18, 16. He says, if that person, if he doesn't listen to you, you take two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Sound like what we read in Deuteronomy, doesn't it? It's common sense. Have someone who can attest to the events. And I would like to say, uh, being optimistic and yet a realist at the same time, I would love to say that we can trust every person who names the name of Jesus. We ought to be able to do that, shouldn't we? But the reality of the broken nature that we carry around is simply not the case. The person in examination might be immature in their walk with the Lord and might not even offer up any type of repentance. They might be in need of admonition or rebuke. They may be lost and in need of salvation. It's better to assess the situation when there are witnesses. A lot of times, hopefully, that this first portion of church discipline would work even before you get to the point. Now, by the way, church discipline is built within the framework of the health of the church for restoration. Okay. And over the years, it has become grossly abused to where we want to bring somebody up on church discipline. We're going to excommunicate. If you don't believe me, read church history. For the church, these principles are so important, and yet they are so neglected. We often think that we might offend somebody if we approach a person that we think is not living for the Lord Jesus or that might be in living in gross sin. So what does the spirit of the age tell us today? It tells us this. It says, who are you to tell me? Mind your business. Well, let me tell you this. When it comes to the health of this local church, it is our business. When it comes to the health of this church growing and being on mission, 
It is our business. And let me tell you a little bit about what individualism looks like within the local church. It's good to be individuals. We are individuals. As we have to answer to the Lord Jesus, it's me, myself, and the Lord. I have to answer for my sin on my own. My mama can't do it. My daddy can't do it. My granddaddy can't do it. Nobody can do it except for me and the Lord. I have to answer before him. But in the sense of the corporate body, we are a collective voice. So here's what individualism looks like within the confines of the local church. It means self-centered feeling or conduct egoism. Basically says, mind your business. So much so that the lines have been blurred to the proper place of stepping in for the sake of restoration. What do I mean? Let me tell you this. One of the most loving things that you can do for the body is to protect her from sinful intrusion. Help restore one who might be slipping. One of the most loving things that you can do for me and I can do for you is for me or for you to help one another grow in their walk in the Lord. And that might mean, listen, that we meddle a little bit. And that doesn't mean bring the hammer down and be hateful and ill one to another. If there is something in the church that is causing her to revel in sin, there might be sin in the camp, it needs to be addressed, and it is our business. Verse 16 says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, both parties will dispute shall appear before the Lord, for the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. Again, Part of the civil law of the Lord to his people was in order for the people to live in harmony one with another, to love and to worship the one true God. And in Deuteronomy, particularly chapter 19, it was what happens when there is manslaughter, what happens when a person is accused wrongly, what happens, how do we manage this? So you take your witnesses to the judges in verse 18, and you shall inquire of them, and if there's a false witness that arises... Then you shall do to him as he meant to do to you, your brother. You shall, and here's where the part I said, to underline in your Bible. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Part of church discipline is to purge the sin from the body. To purge, if you will, even evil sometimes from the midst of the body of Christ. Very quickly, what is the purpose of church discipline? To purge the sin from the midst of the body of Christ. To see the follower of Christ restored in vibrant fellowship with the church and with Jesus. And if a person shows signs that they are not saved, that they are not regenerate, we, teach, we treat them as a person that is in need of salvation. Jesus uses this extreme language. They are to be treated as a tax collector. You treat them as a person who is not saved, who needs to be saved, who needs to hear the gospel. And the rest shall fear, hear fear, and shall never do again any of these evils amongst you. Your eyes shall not pity, and it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. There is much more that I can say on this fact of church discipline, but how is the Lord with us as we execute these things? Remember, he said, where two or three are gathered, there I am, he says. Now, the premises is to, can go back even in the 
time of, of ancient culture. Throughout church history, there has been two extremes. Either, either there would be a church discipline that would be overly zealous. Let me give you an example. Uh, going back in Baptist history, I remember reading uh, some, some minutes of a, beat, of a business meeting where they had brought this young lady up on church discipline charges on a Saturday. Yes, they, used to, they used to do it on Saturday. You didn't get a free Saturday. That was church discipline day. Okay, and so they brought the, this person up on church discipline charges saying that they were in sin because they played a violin at a wedding. And there was another one that was brought up because they were dancing, or they were at a wedding and there was dancing at the church. And so they brought, see, over history it is one or the other extremes. It's overly zealous, or like these two examples, or it has been severely neglected and we just let sin go unchecked and festered in God's house and it ends up doing, either one does damage. The primary source of church discipline is what? God's Word. R.C. Sproul said this, The church is called not only to a ministry of reconciliation, but a ministry of nurture to those within her gates. Part of that nurture includes church discipline. Discipline is not, in the church, is not punishment. It is discipline, and discipline is regarded to train and to restore. What is the purpose? What are the goals of church discipline? Number one, to bring glory to God, to bring glory to Jesus, to bring the body of Christ together. It is not to look for every excuse to kick somebody out of the church. Number two, church discipline is to heal a hurting and damaged body by restoration. What a beautiful picture it is when there is restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness. Number three, it is to apply sound doctrine, to apply sound teaching. No greater example can be shed in the church than when we apply scripturally what church discipline would look like and done in the right way. Fourth, it is to call out and to silence unbiblical perspective on sin, meaning we don't let sin go. In fact, if I'm the pastor here at Piney Grove Baptist Church, you see me doing something that is uh, outside of the will of God, you see me in sin, I would expect you as a church member to come to me and say, brother, I think you are in sin here. It is to protect the church against harmful consequences due to unchecked sin. On the other hand, church discipline is not to be executed just because we do not like someone or something done. There might be a person who you do not like. And the fact remains is there might be people you just don't like their personality. We, we bear with one another. We live with one another. We function with one another because Christ calls us to love one another. But you might not like their personality. And you might say, you know what, I'm going to get them out of the church. There might be a person you don't like. You have made it your mission to come against him or her. If that person is not living in gross sin and it's just because you don't like him, may I say, the altar is open for you today. Jesus went to the cross so we can be redeemed. But he also went to the cross so that measure of forgiveness and restoration can be seen one to another. What a beautiful picture it is of restoration, a beautiful picture of the gospel. Again, one of the most loving things that you can do for one another is check on their spiritual state. What does that mean? Well, I know that there are people in our community 
who can't eat certain foods. I know there are some people who can't eat beef or, or ham or pork or people who, who like, um, they like mayonnaise cake. Some people who don't, I, I know what people like. I, I know what seasons some people like. Some people like the winter. Some people like the fall. And I know a lot about some people in our community. Why? Because I've grown to, to know them in that way, in a personal way. But how many of us can say, I know how my brothers and sisters walk with the Lord Jesus is? What are their struggles? What are they going through? We know one another. We know the ins and outs of one another's life. Hey, sometimes people tell me things that I didn't know about was going to happen. And so, listen very carefully. We need to draw close one to another and become invested in getting to know each other spiritually and the walk that we share with Jesus, knowing one another's struggles, knowing our pitfalls that we have endured. Check this out, and I'll close on this. Once there is restoration, once there is forgiveness, guess what we do? We don't bring it up again. We leave it at the foot of the cross. We give it to Jesus, and we leave it there. As Israel was led by the Lord on how to live in harmony, we are too. I leave you with the words of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we must seek restoration with that truth. Because if our goal really is restoration, if our goal really is to see a brother or sister who's fallen out of fellowship with the local church for whatever reason, if our goal really is to seek restoration, Jesus is with us.